Father, in the name of Jesus, thank you so much for the opportunity to study the written word. This written word was given to us for our learning, for our edification, for doctrine, for training in righteousness, so that we'll be perfect and entire, wanting nothing, lacking nothing. That's your design. That's your desire. So we want to see that um, show up in the lives that we live. We want to see that reflect in our daily endeavors, that the word of God will transform us, it will change us, it will radically reform how we relate with the world around us and with you. Thank you, Father. We love you so dearly. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You guys know I'm super stoked when it comes to the book of Romans and even more when it comes to Romans 8 because Romans 8 is just an amazing chapter and just because we don't have as much time i won't do so much of a recap of everything we've done but i think it's a good idea to have a to understand how we got to this point romans chapter 8 romans chapter 8 starts with therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in christ jesus and i think this is so powerful because he had been building the the whole doctrine of justification by faith alone and then he has finally come to a point where he's trying to explain the life of a christian that's where he's going to he's trying to explain what we have in christ and the whole of romans chapter 8 is very very much summarized as what your life in the spirit should look like so if there's any title for what we are studying in romans 8 all right or if anyone says what's romans 8 about a good title to trigger your mind to everything there is life in the spirit all right so let's go further because we read romans chapter 8 last week from verse 1 and then we ended it with this beautiful verse if the spirit of him who raised jesus from the dead lives in you so that's the statement of fact the holy spirit i don't know how you when you read your bible do you pause to make um statements based on what you've read. I think it's a good practice. So you read something. I want you to be able to, I'm not sharing my screen. Thank you, entire screen. Okay, how about now? So when you read the scriptures, you want to be able to summarize what you are reading in your own words. That's a powerful way to know that you really understand what you've read. If you're just reading a text and you cannot accurately summarize it, maybe you haven't understood it. I think that's a good test. And some of you might be wondering, how is LS able to maybe teach some of these things or communicate it effectively? There's no magic here. Apart from the fact that I have spent time on these scriptures over the years, you know, at different times, and been I've been exposed to this text in different ways. So that already adds to that. But one of the blessed things you can get from reading the scriptures yourself is like a deeper practical understanding of what you are reading so if you see a statement like this for example you should ask yourself what is paul saying what does this mean and if the spirit of him who raised jesus from the dead is living in you so there's already a statement there that before now i've been telling you that the the spirit lives in you you're not controlled by your sinful nature so you have a new spirit now the thing is if that spirit is living in you here is something you need to know He says, he who raised Christ from the dead 
who who is that person? The Father, God. All right. He says, will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. So we are seeing a very, very beautiful equation here or a beautiful situation. You are not without the spirit. That's the first thing he wants you to know. Now, because you are not without the spirit, because you have the spirit, that same spirit is what raised Christ from the dead by, the, by, by God's initiative. It was the Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. So logically, if the Holy Spirit was in Jesus and that raised him from the dead, and that same spirit is in you, what should you expect? That that same spirit should be able to give life to your body. When he says give life to your body, the question is, what kind of life are we talking about? Here, we are really speaking about the resurrection. All right. I know that this verse has been used in many ways. Some of you have heard it quoted to mean something else you know, that it gives you strength, just physical strength. Some people will say, um, you know, different things. They just use it out of context. Paul's context here is that Holy Spirit that lives in you, just the way it raised, that Spirit raised Jesus from the dead, that's the same way you will be raised from the dead. Does that make sense? So that's the beautiful thing here. And he says, it's through his Spirit that lives in you. So life in the spirit guarantees resurrection. So if you are taking notes, those are things you want to know. So since we're, since we're talking about um, life in the spirit, what are the implications of life in the spirit? Number one, it guarantees resurrection. <laughs> and, we're, and we're gonna go deeper into that as we read further. So let's go on to what we're supposed to study today, which is the remaining part of Romans 8. I want you to pay attention because there are a lot of things I'll be saying that are important to grasp because we're entering the other side of Romans very soon. And that one is going to take a lot of work. I'm already praying for strength, you know, to be able to co effectively communicate, you know, God's thoughts through Paul um, there. But let's go on. So Romans chapter 8 from verse 12 says... Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation. In fact, KJV says, <coughs> I'm sorry, I don't know why I have it. I'm sneezing. Um, it says, therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. So here's the point. You are owing something. Every believer in Christ is a debtor. Say I'm a debtor. <laughs> And some of you are actually owing money. You are owing somebody money. That's not what I mean here. I mean, in the real sense, you are owing something. And what you are owing, um, the recipient of that debt or of, of the payment of that debt is not your flesh. It is the spirit. So there was a time you were a debtor to the flesh. That was when you were an unbeliever. I mean, what does it mean to be a debtor to the flesh? It means to constantly, you know, be at the mercy of that person, right? How many of you have felt like when you're owing some money? Sorry, one second. Sorry. How many of you have felt like when you're owing money, right? And, um, you know, you see the person that you're owing. Some of you do like, you don't know what I'm talking about, but and I can't see faces, so I can't even gauge um, what, what you're thinking. But some of you know what I'm talking about. Like, you borrow some money, and somehow you can't pay back. So you see the person, and you start dodging. You start avoiding the person, you know. 
or it might be homework. Some of you are you are debtors when it comes to homework, so you, you just avoid any contact with that professor, that teacher. You know, and there are many ways we can actually be debtors. And Paul is saying we are actually debtors to the spirit, not to the flesh. Because if you are a debtor to the flesh, you are always going to be at the mercy of the flesh. <laughs> it's always going to be able to control you, you know. Bless you. Thank you. Thank you. I'll be fine. It's always going to control you, you know, cause you to do its bidding. So think, think back as to when you were just, you know, when you were not a believer in Jesus Christ. You know, just think of times where you literally were tempted to do stuff and there was no resistance. Like, the only resistance for some of you might be, okay, you were raised in good homes and, you know, they've flogged you when you were young, so there's still that resistance. Or you've been trained morally to avoid those things. But just, even with that, some of you have just been stubborn. Some of us have done crazy things that, you know, People would be shocked to hear that we did them. That was what it looked like when we were debtors to the flesh. But Paul is reminding you of a change in your nature. It's like you are no longer a debtor to the flesh. You are still a debtor, but not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. Then he tells you what it looks like, the result of living according to the flesh. He says you, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So he's saying, in other words, what he has said before, if you serve the spirit, you will live. If you serve the, the, the flesh, if you give it what it wants all the time, you're leading to, it's leading to death. The result of sin is death. It's always death. When God told Adam, the day you eat of this fruit, you will surely die. Now at that moment, when he ate the fruit, he didn't just drop dead, right? If you read your Bible carefully, he still lived another 900 and something years. So was God lying? No, God wasn't lying. God really meant that he would surely die, which meant at that moment he ate it, he brought about the concept of death, things going downhill, decay, corruption. You know, I can imagine that before this happened, you put, a, you put an apple or you cut an apple and you leave it open. Before this world experience the death that came as a result of Adam's sin, that apple would probably just stay there, healthy, no decay, it wouldn't turn brown, you know, water would be clean, um, animals would be, you know, would not be vicious or dangerous to human life, you know, non-living things will respond, so they will not experience decay, exactly, like, things will not go downhill, but when Adam sinned, he just caused a lot of problems. We're going to see the impact of what Adam did in this same Romans 8, because Paul talks about it. And some of you may not know that that's what that text was always referring to, but that will answer a lot of questions for you. Because a lot of people will be saying, why did God do this? Why did God send Hurricane Katrina? Why did God send, allow earthquake? Why did God? And I'm like, have you read your Bible? You are asking the wrong question. Who really did those things? Let's see. Verse 14, for as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. And, and if you are taking notes still, I want you to write this. Life in the Spirit means living as a child of God. So your life in the Spirit, having the Holy Spirit dwelling in you is a, 
is is the um, license that God that God gives you to be led by Him. So every believer has a birthright, and that birthright is being led by the Spirit. And I can tell you for a fact that if some of, some people think that being led by the Spirit always has to be, you know, you hear a still small voice, or for some people an audible voice. You know, I went to a school where our chancellor, you know, would say very very audacious statements like when God told me to start, he just said, take a left, you know, take a right, the other left. And then he said, this is the place. He said, that's how God led him to the church where he started what has now become one of the biggest um, church movements in, in, in West Africa and even the world. You know, that seriousness, God is leading me. And many of us, we, we hear that and we're like, oh my God, that is so far-fetched. I don't think God leads me because you've never heard an audible voice. But I want you to realize that it doesn't say for as many as are dragged by the Spirit of God or for as many as are forced or driven by the Spirit of God. It actually says for as many as are led. And what does leading mean? Leading means to give direction. Guess what you do to someone who leads? You follow. So you have a responsibility to follow a leading. All right. And so many people don't understand that you don't even have to work for the leading of God. Like it's not something to pray for or something to fast for. Now, pay attention to what I'm saying, because when you fast and when you pray, what you are doing is you are aligning yourself so that you are more sensitive to the leading of God. It doesn't mean God will lead you because you are fasting. It means God has been leading you, but you have been so much in the flesh, probably been living according to the flesh. And so your spirit is not even attentive to what God is saying. But, but the, the guarantee here is that the spirit will always lead. If you are a son of God, if you are a child of God, and how do you know you are a child of God? We already read that last week, right? Romans 8 verse 9. But you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he is not his. Meaning, you don't belong to God if you don't have the spirit. So how do you know you belong to God or that you are a son of God? Because you have the spirit. And so if you have the spirit, what are you guaranteed? You're guaranteed the leading of the spirit. How many of you get what I'm saying so far? God leads his children. It's guaranteed. It's just the same way a human being is supposed to breathe. And if you're not breathing, something is wrong. Like you, you need help um, scientific, scientifically, medically, everything. Because your normal um, design as a human being is to breathe. So as a, as a son of God, you are led by the Spirit. So I want, you to, I want you to say that I'm led. When you're in a situation where there's confusion, or you don't know what to do, or it's just like, this is, this is a hard situation, be led by the Spirit. That's my response. Like, be led. Like, He's leading you. So just respond to His leading. Now, how does He lead you? That's another conversation. So, I think primarily, Paul has been teaching extensively on the leading of God in many ways, but we missed it. How does God lead us primarily? It has to be in the context. Who can tell me what the leading of the Spirit of God is primarily based on the context? Now, let me give you the context. So that will help you a little bit. So I'm going to put the, you are led by the spirit between, you know, all the other surrounding verses. And I want you to tell me 
what the leading of the spirit primarily is. Now, there are specific leadings, so don't get me wrong, where God might guide you on who to marry, that's rare, but that happens. Or what job to take, that's rare, but that happens. But what is the primary way God leads, or what is what is the leading of God's spirit? Who wants to answer that question? Beautiful, beautiful. Yes, you're getting it. So he says, go ahead, go ahead, unmute yourself. I think uh, maybe the ultimate leading maybe in this context would be like surrendering to Christ. Mm-hmm. I don't know, but in that context, the person who is who is following the leading is not yet a child of God. But mm-hmm. I'm trying to, yeah. But yes. you're, you're absolutely right. Everybody is right. And I'm so proud of you all. So when you think of the leading of God's spirit, stop thinking of t- make it left, go right, or wear this red dress. That's not the leading of the spirit primarily. The leading of the spirit primarily is you are not a debtor anymore to the flesh. You are a debtor to the spirit. And so God leads you towards fulfilling the desires of the spirit so that by the spirit's help, you will put to death the deeds of the body. That's the leading of the spirit. That's why it follows when it says for as many, for, what does for mean in English language? Is I'm following from something. So for as many as are led by the Spirit, these are the sons of God. The true sons of God are those who put to death the deeds of the body. And the reason you put to death the deeds of the body is because the Spirit is leading you to do that. Now, how do I know for sure that that's what he's saying? This doesn't happen in the unbeliever. The unbeliever is not trying. <laughs> they may want to try. I know there are groups like maybe in someone who is addicted and then they say, oh, join AAA, or is it AA? Sorry, it's not AAA. Anonym, something anonymous. I, help me out if you know that thing. But AA, like they come together and then they, they is in so many um, so many movies where they'll come together in a circle, they'll all share their stories and they just help each other to get better. And there have been people who have come out of addictions like that, or people who have come up, come out of those things. Because some of these things are neurological. You can you can through medical training, get help for addictions. I'm telling you, like, definitely, because your mind has a lot to do with it. Um, but that is not something that is primary. Like, if if you get that kind of help, you are getting it because of, you know, sheer force of will or um, you're just tired of what is happening in your life. Your motivation is not necessarily to please God, right? Alcoholics Anonymous, thank you. They are not doing it from the desire, you know, necessarily to please God, which should be our desire ultimately, you know, and that's why we try to get the help that we want. That's why we put to death the deeds of the body. That's why we do all these things that we do is because we want to serve God. We don't want to serve sin anymore. So there's a difference. All right. And that's the difference I want to really point out so that you get the gist here. The leading of the spirit is primarily leading you away from the deeds of the body and giving you the strength and the desire is the one who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. It's the Holy Spirit in you that is doing that work. That is the leading of the Spirit. So every time you feel tempted to do something and you feel it's a nudge or, a, or, a, or an inclination to resist, that is the Spirit leading you. And so it gets stronger as you participate, as you support, as you help, as you synergize with the work of the Spirit. All right. I I hope that's clear to you. So as many as are led by the Spirit, these are the sons of God. Those are the true sons of God. 
because they mortify the deeds of the body. And he reminds you, he says, for you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear. The spirit you received is not one of the law because he's referring back to the law, what the Lord did. He didn't produce fruit of righteousness in anyone. Instead, he just showed you the standard and showed you how, you know, disastrous it would be to try to attain it in your own power. All right. So he says, you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. So a lot of people read this, but you don't get the message here. So when he says, but you received the spirit of adoption, that is another aspect of life in the spirit. So if you want to take notes or you're taking notes, this is another point. Life in the spirit means adoption into the family of God. So having the spirit in you, we've already established you are, you are guaranteed um, resurrection, Romans 8, 11. You are guaranteed the leading of the spirit. He leads you. And I've told you what the leading of God is like. That's the life of a Christian, the life in the spirit. And then we're seeing again now that your life in the spirit means you have been adopted into the family of God. What does adoption mean? It means you're not just a stranger. You're not a foreigner. You're not a visitor. You're a member of the family. That's, that's a big thing. And to make you get the gist, Paul uses the word Abba, which translated in our English language today is daddy or papa, depending on what you say, or depending on how um, endearing the word you use to describe your father would be. So in other words, some of us, I mean, how many of us here call our fathers um, if they are here with us, you know, sir? I, I mean, it's one of the strangest things for me, but I see that happen, you know. Yes, sir, on the phone. They'll be like, yes, sir. Okay, sir. And because I was raised differently, <laughs> because I was raised differently, I find it hard to say that. Um, and it was just very interesting to see um, you know, how different families or how different people function. But I know even when you say yes, sir, on those phone calls, if you, if you have some of those people who say sir to your parents, um, even with that, there is still that fondness, right? There is still that fondness when you're with them. You can even be like, you know, hug, you can hug them or say daddy or something. You know, and that's like what Abba would would look like. For for me, I don't because like I said, the way I was trained, I was always trained to call my daddy daddy. It's just daddy on the phone. Hi dad, daddy. So there's always that fondness. I think it's a good way to train your kids. Um because ultimately uh, if they're going to respect you, whether they call you by your first name or anything, they will respect you if you train them to respect you. And if you give them every reason to respect you, they will. Um but one thing you want to ensure that your parents, um, one thing that you want to ensure that you do when you train your children is you want them to experience uh, fatherly or motherly love, right? You want them to be able to run to you when they have issues. You don't want them to find help outside. You want them to feel safe at home. And um, nomenclatures can be very helpful to do that. That's what Paul is using here when he says, you receive the spirit of adoption. So it's by that spirit that you can call God, who is meant to be far off, distant, powerful, sovereign. You can call him daddy. <laughs> the most 
endearing term you can ever use to describe a father. So it doesn't just say we cry out father. That would have been very nice. That would have been such a beautiful privilege. But Paul adds Abba, which is like daddy, you know. So he is trying to show you that the, the spirit you received has brought you to the innermost parts of, of the family. So you're not just in the extended family of Jesus. You're in his nuclear family, if there's any way to put it that way. Like you share in the blessings that Jesus himself tends to receive or can receive or has from the Father. He says the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. I think this is one of the most beautiful verses in the whole of Romans 8. So the Spirit in you bears witness with your spirit that you are a child of God. So there are times where you may feel like, you know, you're not, you don't belong to God anymore. It is that spirit that reminds you in many ways um, that you're a child of God. I want to read this comment real quick. So, um, Tercy says, I think that's why it was hard to understand that fondness, that fondness and love because we sometimes think of our earthly fathers. And I, and I, and I really agree with that. Um, it is well. When we grow up, and many of us have grown up, then what am I saying when we grow up? When you, when you start to take on these responsibilities, make sure you fix the obvious problems that you see now, you know. And I'm thankful that you've been able to adjust and understand the love of God. It's hard. Let me tell you for a fact, it is harder for anyone who has not experienced fatherly love um, to understand in its depth the love that God has for his children. And it takes the spirit's work to help you see that. So if you are if you are even softer to it now and you love the father, you know, you love God so much, that's the work of the spirit because he's going against your natural training and your natural experiences to show you, hey, I'm I'm bigger and I love you deeply. Um so I should take that into cognitive sounds too as I speak that you may not have that experience in your earthly life, but make sure you create that experience. You want to mirror Christ and the Father in every way um, in your own life, in your own families. So break those cycles, all right? Um, yeah, so like I said, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirits that we are children of God. So it is the Spirit's work in us that reminds us who we are. That's why you don't just wake up and you're like, um, am I still a Christian? I mean, if you're expressing that, then that's bad. Te- you've, you've grown up under bad teaching or you need, I know, I don't know what to say. You, you need someone to teach you the fundamentals again, just like Paul said, um, the writer of Hebrews said, God loves you. God has called you into his family. So that spirit is what makes reminds you that you're a child. I mean, I mean, you don't wake up, you know, Victoria doesn't wake up and say, am I still Ogunola? Or, you know, like, you don't you don't doubt your family heritage. You don't doubt that you belong to this family. That's what the Holy Spirit does. In a sense, the Holy Spirit gives us God's surname, for lack of a better explanation. It, it just It's just a way of bringing you into the family and you know for sure. Now, it's not just the name you get. Because Romans 8.17 now says, and if you are children, then you are heirs. Because if you are really children, then there's something you must get. And and by tradition, every child is a beneficiary of the inheritance. So you're an heir 
of God. And not only are you an heir of God, you are a joint heir with Christ. Basically, if there's anything God could put together and say, Jesus, you deserve this as my son. Paul is saying you are just like Jesus. And so you share in that same inheritance. That's big. Like We're saying it right now. We're reading it and we're like, wow, this is powerful. This is nice. But this is, is mind-blowing, guys. This is mind-blowing. This is beyond what we can really explain. Because many of us don't even get what it means that what God wants to give Christ, he's given us. Or not. Joint heirs, co-heirs with Christ. And then, he, <laughs> and then he plays a minor chord after this. Bam. And what's the minor chord? If indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. Because I know a lot of people are always excited about the first part. We have an inheritance. We are joint heirs. Glory to God. You know, all of that stuff. But there is a requirement. That requirement is that if you are going to be part of a family, you are also going to be part of whatever shame the family suffers. And guess what? As glorious as the kingdom of God is, it suffers violence. As beautiful as the kingdom of God is, it is attacked by the world, right? It is hated. Jesus was hated. And so you are going to share in his blessing, you know, and his inheritance, but you also have to share in his suffering. So if people hated Jesus, they will hate you too. So Paul is trying to remind you that, hey, it's not all uh, roses and sunshine. No, those roses actually have thorns and that sunshine actually can burn your skin. <laughs> so it's beautiful, but it also has its um, the things that come along with it. And it should be something we should be glad, willing to go through. Why? Because it cannot be compared. And I'll show you what he, what, how he said that. So if we suffer with him, we'll also be glorified together. So you must participate in both the suffering of Christ and his glories. So um, this is basically Paul saying, guys, you will suffer for the sake of Jesus, but it will not be compared to anything let me show you what he's saying now. Verse 18. For I consider... Now, notice the word consider. The, the word consider in the Greek is logizomai, where we get logic or consideration or calculation or in conclusion, based on this thing I've said. He says, I have looked at it and I just see, even though he calls us that we should, you know, it's granted unto us not only to believe on Jesus, but to also... Um, suffer for his name by the way i'm quoting a scripture there if you know the text you can put that in the chat it says for it is granted unto us not only to believe but also to suffer for his namesake something like that so it's 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 part of the calling as a believer you don't just enjoy things you also suffer with him and the suffering is not necessarily um a bad thing like Paul is saying, because if you look at it from the right lenses, you would see what Paul is saying here. And if there's anyone that can make the statement you see on the scripture, it's Paul. Like, who has suffered as much as Paul? Thank you. Philippians 1.29. You guys can read that later on. So Paul says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. Oh, so many things to share here. So I consider that the sufferings of this time, what are the sufferings of this time? It could be anything you can think of that Paul himself suffered. Let me show you some of the things that he suffered. Uh, but before we do that, imagine a scale 
right? You know those scales, right? You put something here, this one goes up. You put something here, it goes up, right? And you want to balance the scale. Imagine that, if you're not looking at the camera, look, look at what I'm describing, you know. It says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared. So if I put all the problems on this side of the scale, all the sufferings, everything, he says, it's not even worthy to be compared. Like if you try to put glory on the right side, what you are doing is wrong because Paul is saying this will sup way it will way surpass this. Like it's, it will break the scale. That's what he's trying to tell you. It it cannot be compared. It's not worthy of comparison. The glory that will be revealed where in us. That statement is so crucial. But let me quickly show you the sufferings of Paul because you may think he's just writing a theological thing here. Like okay, let's just let me just say this nice sounding thing. Paul is speaking from experience. That's why he said, for I consider. Because <laughs> he suffered it. Look at um, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Hey, oh Lord God. This is, this, is, um, <laughs> this is Paul's explanation of his experience. He said, are they Hebrew? So am I. Are they Israelites? I'm reading from verse 22. So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. So he's saying, I'm like them. You know, are they ministers of Christ? And by the way, who is the them he's talking about? Is He's talking about some false apostles who came and, you know, they're trying to take the shine away from Paul and trying to get attention to themselves. And Paul is saying, hey, listen, I'm, I'm also like them. You know, I speak as a fool. I shouldn't be comparing myself with them. But just to make my point, say I speak as a fool. I am more. And then he starts to talk about all his sufferings. Listen, oh, this is what Paul went through. He says, in labors more abundant, so hard work, in stripes above measure, so it was flogged, in prison more frequently, in deaths often, eh? Paul is literally saying, I was at the brink of death. I don't know what's worse than that kind of suffering. He says, from the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. So five times 39 stripes. And it's not um, Koboko, because <laughs> some of you don't know what we're talking about here. Tokoboko, it is very, very, um, it's a very, very painful whip. Just so I can not, I won't spend too much time there. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have been in the deep. How many of you have been in the in the water on a ship, stranded for a day and a night? <laughs> wow. And it's not like today where there's like um you know nice cabins and all those things that you have like electricity or you have phone to distract you mm -mm. in journeys often in perils of water in perils of robbers so he was robbed if there's any one of you that has been robbed paul is not talking from a place of absentia he experienced it himself in perils of my own countrymen perils of the gentiles perils in the city perils in the wilderness perils in the sea he has been through a lot even false brethren in weariness and sleeplessness, in hunger and thirst. Please, if your own suffering is not in this list, then you must be someone special because Paul is basically saying, these are the things I have gone through. These are sufferings that I've experienced. Even the, the concern for the church, just the fact that he has deep concerns for the church, he says that is a, suffer it's a kind of suffering for me. And so Paul is saying Romans 8 from verse 18 from a place of understanding i understand 
that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Then he says, he now wants to explain this concept of the glory that will be revealed in us. So he's going to explain it with a few verses. And I want to just put them together so I can explain them all at once. I need someone to read this for me. Can anyone read this right now? You can unmute yourself. Romans chapter 8 from verse 19 to 21. For the earnest expectation, <laughs> earnest. For the earnest expectation of the creation really waits for the re revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. Thank you. Thank you, Fair. <sighs> This would take a long time to explain, but I'll try to summarize it. Remember, Paul had just built that the sufferings of this present time should not be compared with the glory because the glory is far surpassing. It's something your mind cannot fathom right now. So it's worth the suffering. Every suffering you experience now is nothing compared to what you will get. But he wants to break down the fact that this glory will be revealed in us and he wants to explain how that will happen. So he takes us back on the journey. That's what Ife just read. He says, for the earnest expectation of the, cre of the creation eagerly awaits the revealing of the sons of God. KJV, that a lot of people quote, um, just says, for the earnest expectation. By the way, that's where I got the name. For those of you who are wondering, um, why is this IG name, earnest expectation? I got it from here because it was just, just looked fancy. Um, but it has nothing to do with my name at all. For the earnest expectation of the creature waited for the manifestation of the sons of God. What does that mean? Is it God is waiting for you to manifest? Is it talking about your breakthrough has come? That is off context. That does not, that's not what this text is saying. This text is really just talking about the fact that all of creation is waiting for the manifestation of of the sons of God. What is the manifestation of the sons of God? The previous verse, the, the glory that will be revealed in us. There is a time that is coming when the true glory of our real nature right now will appear. We don't look like we are going to be. I'm serious. If there's any, if any one of you here right now has an infirmity that you've struggled to deal with, you know, you've gone to a lot of hospitals, they've told you, um, Man, this thing, this thing is just, you know, it's there to stay. You have to manage it or, you know, whatever it is. Some of you have, are born with some, some medical defects. You know, some of us have pimples and we're like finding out what do we do to deal with these pimples. The point is everything is waiting for everything to be restored. And that's where Paul is going with this. There is an earnest expectation of the creation waiting for the real sons of God to be revealed. Because when the real sons of God are revealed, when we who have been, been adopted into the family of God, when it is shown that, who, that we are truly the sons of God, because right now it's easy for people to doubt. They can look at us and say, oh, you look at you. You don't look like anything special. But one day our true nature will be revealed. And that's what this text is really talking about. And how would it be revealed? When Christ appears, the Bible says we will appear will look like him, will be as he is. It will be obvious to the world. That's why I don't, I don't buy the idea of that silent rapture um, in um, a lot of these movies. 
Because when I read the Bible, I don't, I don't, the Left Behind series doesn't, doesn't apply. And I'm not the only one that thinks that a lot of theologians are like, nope, it's not a silent rapture kind of thing that will happen. It's in the mid, in the, in, right in the sky. And you guys can, you don't have to follow, believe what I'm saying here because there are many views on how the end of the world will come. But the Bible is very clear. At the twinkling of an eye, we'll all be changed. It's not like we'll disappear and they'll be like, hey, where's Victoria? He will, it is at the twinkle of an eye, will all be changed into this glorious form where it will be clear to the whole world. How would the whole world see who we are if we, if we silently disappear? You know, there's going to come one time when God will finally show who we really are. And that's what he's saying. But this can be a conversation for another time. All right. Some of you are watching. Oh my God. I've not heard this view before. Um, we can talk about it, but it just it just it just looks so much to me that that's what's going to happen. That there's going to be something grand, something big. That there will be the, the the voice of an archangel, the trump of God. Everyone will hear it. It is now time. God has been given enough time for those. You know, at the time of ignorance, God winked that, but now He calls men everywhere to repent. And so this is the time we're waiting for that. The next event in history is the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that will be a big thing. And it will be the moment we reveal, reveal to the whole world, you know, who we really are. Let me round this up real quick. It says, for the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who had subjected the same in hope. This is talking about how everything went downhill. Because of the sin of Adam, everything, the creature was subject to vanity. What does vanity mean? All of creation was subject to God's curse. Things started going downhill, right? NIV says the, crea the creation was subject to frustration, not by its own choice, meaning the world did not want to decay, but because of what Adam did, everything went downhill. But he now says that the creation itself this creation that was going down here will be liberated, will be restored, delivered from its bondage of decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. So here's the order of things. Adam sinned, everything decayed. God came up with a plan to restore man unto himself. He did it through a lineage, Jews. Jesus comes on the scene. He dies. He becomes the first fruit of many brethren to rise from the dead and to receive a new body. Now, he now grants us that privilege that when we put our faith in him, we will also be resurrected, will also, in a sense, be manifested, all right? And we'll receive our new bodies. And all of the world that was under the bondage of corruption will catch up and will also be liberated from the bondage. Who gets what I just said? In other words, God's plan to redeem the world will come to pass. It's going to happen. Everything will come back to what it's supposed to be. Right now, we live in a fallen world. And that's what I was trying to say before. The reason there's, there are earthquakes, there are sicknesses, there's disease and all of these things. And things are going bad in the world. is because of sin. It's not God that's doing those things. Those things came by the, by the will of the one who subjected it. That's what verse 20 says. But by the will of the one who subjected it. That, that's Adam, the sin of man caused all the problems. But it says, no, God's not going to leave it that way. God will restore it. And he's doing that already. He started the work by, first of all, sending Jesus Christ to save us. And then ultimately, 
that by saving us, we would have eternal life. We'll have a life, you know, that lasts forever, a life that is not subject to decay. So God has to fix the cause, um, which is what he does. That's what the whole gospel is about. God is a legal God who will not break protocol against his own nature. All right. He will be faithful and just. And then he says, we know that the creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. All the things we look around us or we see around us is looking forward to the redemption. Like everything around us. When you see the, you know, the, the earth groaning, which I would, I would equate to maybe earthquakes or stuff like that. Every, everything wants to be brought back to what it's supposed to be. All right. And then he says, not only so, not only these things, but we ourselves within us, we have the first fruit of the spirit. We have the guarantee. We also groan inwardly as we await, as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons. Do you get it now? So we are waiting eagerly. That's the same word, earnestly, for our adoption. There's an expectation. We're waiting for something massive to happen. And that's when we'll be adopted as sons and our bodies will be redeemed. We'll be, they will be quickened. The, the dead in Christ will rise first. Those of us who are here will be changed, right? That's what it's talking about. We are waiting for that. But while we are waiting, all we have is what? The first fruit of the Spirit. All right, the first fruit of the spirit. Oh my God, I need to finish this chapter today. Will you guys be patient with me? I want to rush this real quick, please. Just a few more minutes um, and I'll be done with this. It says, for in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is not hope at all. So who hopes for anything that he, has, he already has? In other words, it's not, you, you don't define this as hope if we've already seen it. But I don't think anyone has looked around and seen the decay fixed yet. The world is trying, scientists are trying, you know, all they can do is slow down the death process. There's nobody that has found the cure for, for, for death. They can only tell you, oh, eat healthy, do this, do that, and you have the chance to live at least 120 years. That's the max this world's best can do. But what we have is hope. We know it will happen. So because we know it will happen, we can be confident, and that's what he's saying, that who hopes for something that he already has, but we don't have it yet. We are looking for it because we have the spirit to guarantee it, but we don't have it yet. So he says, if we hope for what we do not have, then we wait for it patiently. So it's an instruction to the believer. Wait patiently. Something is coming. And then, please, I need show of hands. How many of you want me to finish this? Because it, we just have a few more verses, and I, and I know we're already on time, but I really want to finish this. So if you guys feel like you're okay to stay let me know i want to see like five six yeses all right i'm going to rush through this beautiful thank you awesome all right all right good so it says in the same way the spirit helps us in our weakness what is our weakness that's a very brilliant question but from what i've built so far you should already know the answer our weakness is we are hoping we don't have it yet we don't have the, the we have the guarantee of the spirit we know that we'll be restored and given new bodies. We know we'll be redeemed, but we have a weakness. We don't know exactly what to ask for, right? We don't know what to pray for. And so while the world is groaning and the believer, the spirit within the believer is groaning, uh, I mean, the believer himself is growing, the spirit also is in that process. So because we don't know what to pray for, we don't know what to expect. We don't know exactly what to ask for because everything is going haywire right now 
So he says the spirit himself intercedes for us because the spirit knows the mind of God, knows what we are, what is coming and can assure us of that. So the spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that with that words cannot express. So some people have said this text is speaking about tongues. Um, it doesn't make sense that this text is talking about tongues. The spirit doesn't need tongues to intercede for you. All right. And also, second evidence, when he says with groans that words cannot express, tongues is utterance. Tongues are words. Um, speaking in tongues is not groanings. All right. So I don't want people to miss the, the point Paul is trying to make here. And they say this is talking about tongues. There's no way this is referring to that for many reasons. What it's talking about is the intercession of the spirit. We don't know what we ought to pray for. So when we do pray, when we <laughs> so when we do pray, what, what is happening is the spirit is helping us, even when we don't know what to pray about. That is such a comfort that even when you don't know what to pray, things are happening, you lose a loved one. Um, you know, um, something in your life goes haywire because of the the fact that the world is going downhill and you don't know exactly what to pray. The spirit steps in and helps you to and grows with you that, you know, in that, in that place of weakness. How? That's a good question. But the way the spirit does it, he doesn't tell us. He just says with groans. So, the spirit is groaning. Now, you may not hear the groaning because it's a spirit thing, but he's groaning all the same. All right. Now, the, so you guys should not add anything that the scripture is not saying. I'm going to explain on the side that the gift of tongues is a blessing. All right. I'm just telling you that that's not what this is talking about. And in Bible Marathon, we want to be very, very um, Bible centric. We want to be very accurate in our exegesis, right? So, First Corinthians fourteen talks about tongues. It's a gift of the Spirit where we can communicate with God, all right, um, with utterances that our minds cannot understand. So, the word here, when it says "which grows that words cannot express," let me show you um, in um, what's it called KJV because that's when you get it. The Spirit makes intercessions for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. This is a description of there is no utterance, like there is nothing being said. It's a groaning in the Spirit. It's just basically saying God is with you in that moment of weakness. All right, so let me read it again. Maybe you, you, you will get it because I still have a few things to explain here. Likewise, and trust me, it may take a while, but I want you to read it and follow the, the, another, the, the flow here. Likewise, the Spirit also helps our infirmity. Colon, for we don't, we know not what we should pray for as we ought. In other words, because we are waiting, we are expecting, there is a travailing, right? The world is travailing. We are travailing. We have the Spirit. We are groaning within ourselves. So in your own self, there is a groaning. What is that groaning? It is a groan of, Oh, let it happen. I'm tired of this life. That's really the meaning of the groan. I'm tired of all the problems around me. I want to see the redemption. I'm waiting. I'm tired of everything going the way it is. Many, how many of you have felt that way? Like you just want all the suffering to end. Paul had already started with saying that, that, hey, you will suffer. 
and everything will bring about the glory of God ultimately, and the glory will surpass it. But while we are still here, we are suffering. God gives us the blessing, first of all, by giving us the first fruit of his spirit, which we just read, right? It says we, we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption. We are waiting for the redemption of our bodies. Then he says, even while we are waiting, the spirit is also in us doing, helping us. So this is not specifically speaking about tongues. Does, does tongues in itself help? Um, it does. All right. It helps because now you are communicating in a language that God understands. It's a language your mind cannot understand. But it's not referring to it has it's not specifically referring to um, this particular thing which we are talking about, which is God redeeming all of the world together. All right. Um, so when he says with groanings that cannot be uttered, obviously is referring to something that cannot be made out with human speech. Um, and utterance, one of the gifts of utterance is tongues or interpretation or prophecy. So, all right, I can come back to this later. On, but I just want to round this up like I promised. And he says, he that searcheth the heart knoweth what is the mind of the spirit because he maketh intercession for the saints according to will of God. So this is another guarantee. See, listen to me. And you may not believe this now, but you will believe it later on. Tongue speaking or not, this applies to every believer in Christ, all right? Because that's what the scripture is saying. You have the spirit. That's where it started from. You have the spirit. He lives in you. Because he lives in you, you'll be raised from the dead. Because he lives in you, you are led by the spirit. Because he lives in you, he can intercede on your behalf. So the idea is you are, you are not, there's nothing that can fail. <laughs> like you, you are... You are destined for success. That's the whole idea Paul is bringing. That in the spirit, you have everything you need. You are adopted in the family of God. He loves you. He has given you all that you need. You have, you have an inheritance. You are a joint heir with Christ. And not only that, when you are weak and you don't know what to pray about, God himself knows what is in your heart and communicates that to God on your behalf. That's like powerful stuff. So when you are praying and you may not make sense in your prayer, God is taking Hold together with you. The Greek word is actually the Greek word here where it says the spirit also helpeth our infirmities. It's one word in the Greek. It's sunantilambanomai. For those of you, for those of you that have access to the Greek Bible, go and look at it. It's one long word that says sunantilambanomai. What does it mean? It means to take hold together with you. So the spirit is helping you in your weakness. It's beautiful. Like you're never disadvantaged as a person in the spirit. Your life in the spirit is one outside of disadvantages. And so this now makes sense because he now says, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. So he's basically saying everything is going to work out. Why? The spirit is in you. The spirit is going to resurrect you. You have an inheritance. No matter what you suffer, the glories that are going to come will be greater. Not only that, even when you are weak and you have infirmities and you don't know what to pray, the Spirit himself is also for you. So everything will work out together for good. Now, notice he says all things work together for good. He doesn't say every situation individually. It's all things. So you might look at one situation and that situation might be bad and you may not understand in the grand scheme of things how that one bad event in your life works out for good. But 
it's really the idea of all things working together for the good of them that love God. So when you bring the um, the full puzzle, right? When you put all the pieces of the puzzle together, you look at it, you're like, wow, everything really does work together for the good of them that love him. The suffering you go through works for your good. The glories you experience works for your good. All things work together for the good of them that love God and uh, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Now, next week, we'll, we'll try to unravel what that phrase, the called according to his purpose means, all right? Because it's important to get that. But let's finish this up. Oh, my God, there's no time. I want to ask one more time. We have about five, eh? a few more verses, like seven verses. I'll rush through this, guys. I promise. Let me just go through this. I don't want to come back here. I want us to start afresh next week. So he says, for whom he did foreknow, and this is just a guarantee for the believer that God knew from the beginning and he is committed to finishing it. That's what Paul is explaining here. He says, for whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son. In other words, those who God knew, um, and here is prognosco, we'll talk more about it next week. He, he also predestined to be conformed. So you who have the spirit, it is your destiny to look like Jesus. He will complete that work. He wants Jesus to be the firstborn among many brethren. So in making you like his son in righteousness, which is what we taught in Romans 3, 4, 5, 6, right? In making you righteous like Jesus is, he has conformed you to his image, but he's also conforming you practically to the image of his son. That's something God is still doing, you know, by his spirit within you. That Jesus might be the firstborn among many brethren. And he says, who, who, moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. Meaning, what he starts, he will finish. That's the whole point here. Now, we'll come into questions about election. Because some people have questions on that. Um, did God predestine certain people to believe and some to not believe? That's for next week. So don't miss next week. And that's why I want to run through this real quick. Um, whom he did not, he did predestinate, them he also called. Whom he called, he justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Meaning he will finish the work. Then he says, what shall we say to all these things? Like with everything that Paul has said, what should we conclude? He says, if God be for us, who can be against us? So I just painted the picture. God has been helping us from the very start. And he's committed to finishing it. So who else on the earth is greater than God that can be against us? Nothing. And he says, he, God, who spared not his own son, that freely gave his own son, how will he not with him freely give us all things? Like, if you buy a car from me, a Tesla, you are definitely getting a key holder. What is a key holder? <laughs> right? Like, you bought the Tesla. That's kind of like, if Jesus... It was given to us. What is anything else? God will gladly give that to us. In other words, if God has fully justified you, what is what is too big for him to do? You see, then he says, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? That means to this person who has been predestined and glorified, justified, who can anyone, like who can lay a charge? <laughs> Basically, who can, who can say um, he's guilty? No one, because God is the one that justifies. Like God is the only one that has the right to call you guilty and he's justifying you. So who can lay a charge? That's what that verse is saying. 
And then verse 34, who is he that condemns? Well, Jesus died and now he's risen again and he sits at the right hand of God and he's making intercession for us. So now we have the spirit interceding for us. We have the son making intercession for us. You are, you are ah, invincible. <laughs> that's the point he's trying to make. And that's why I said Romans 8 is one of the most powerful chapters in the Bible. I wish we would come back again to it and just build on it. I think I'm going to do a scripture sprint on Romans 8. For, by the way, if you don't know what the scripture sprint is, um, look for my YouTube channel. It's just my name, Ernesto Lusanya. I have a lot of videos I've made um, on rightly dividing the scriptures. And I have this series called Scripture Sprint, Sprint, which I take specific chapters and just delve into them deeply. So that will bless you if you have the time. I'm going to do Romans 8 because it's so beautiful. Um, let's finish this off. Oh, God. <laughs> Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Like what? He says, as it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Then he says, nay, meaning what shall separate us from the love of Christ? Nothing will. In all these things, we are more than conquerors. We're not just conquerors. Conquerors are winners. You know, they win the battle, but we are more in many ways. Because we do more than win a battle. It says through him who loved us. And it's because of his love that we are conquerors. That's beautiful. So it says, for I'm persuaded. And we're rounding up now. This is the end of Romans chapter 8 from verse 38 to 39. If you can unmute yourself. Actually, if you can read together with me. You don't need to unmute yourself just because of the recording. But I want you to read this together with me. Romans chapter 8 from verse 38 to 39. I want you to mean it from your heart. All right. Romans 8, 38 to 39, 1, 2, go. For I am persuaded that neither life, nor death, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Man, this is powerful stuff. Paul is saying there is nothing. Death cannot separate us. Life too cannot. Because some of you are wondering, what, how does life separate us? Some, some things that you experience in life might make you seem that you are separated from God. He says even life will not separate you from, from God. No angel has the ability to, no power in heaven and hell, nothing present, nothing in the future. So even, I dare say, this, this is what comes to, you know, round up the gospel of God's grace, that even when you do something in the future that is not up to par with your nature, it will not separate you from the love of God. This is a guarantee that God is willing to, to keep you and accept you and prevent you from falling. Like it's God's commitment. It's the spirit's commitment. It's Jesus' commitment. So you are, you are invincible. Hallelujah. That's what takes us back to the last verse, which is verse 1. Everything we just read today now helps us come to that conclusion that there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Hallelujah. <sighs> I know I spent more time. I'm going to round us up, pray, and then I know some of you might have questions. So if you don't, if you need to leave, feel free to leave. All right. But I do want to clarify some things that maybe might have been missed along the way um, or people that have some different views. I want to hear them. Man, this is powerful stuff. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Um, 
before I pray, quick announcement. We're having a film show on Sunday. Please show up on Sunday. It's going to be our normal Bible marathon time. Um, and the film is, some of you know the film, those of you who stayed long enough. But please come on time because it's 1 hour 57 minutes. So you want to come exactly at the time. We're not going to tell you the movie until you see the flyer. All right. So you'll see the title of the movie on the flyer. But you guys have to come. It's going to be well streamed. Um, you guys are going to be able to watch it in the clearest version possible over Zoom. I'm going to make sure that internet is perfect. All right. But you guys need to come. It's a beautiful way to round up the series, The Chronicles of the Lion and the Lamb. All right. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you because nothing in this world or outside of this world can separate us from your love. It's so big. It's so marvelous a truth and lord we want to hold to it we want to hold to it boldly confidently knowing that you love us all the same that your spirit is working in us that your son you know is a joint we are joint heirs with your son jesus christ thank you for the privilege we have to be called children of god we love you and we appreciate you lord and for anyone who is still having doubts you know in their hearts about where they are with you if they, don't, if they don't believe, let them be scared to believe, Lord. Cause them to see um, the light of the gospel. But if they are believers and they doubt, Lord, let there be an assurance by the Spirit within them that they belong to you. And let them live in response to that life that they have received. Thank you, Father. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.